This is Founders Talk, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This show features in-depth, one-on-one conversations with founders. Tune in live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. And this is episode number 41, recorded May 8th, 2013. And today's guest is Garrett Diamond, the founder of Sifter. Enjoy the show. We're back, and today we're joined by Garrett Diamond. Garrett, you're the founder. I mean, you're most known as being the founder of Sifter and uh, a number of other things. I'm sure you give some really great talks. You've done some really awesome interface design over the last few years. But um, just kind of getting back into this show, uh, we kind of just chatted a little bit there about about this show not being – produced in a while so uh, it's still a little new to me coming back to founders talk but super stoked to have you on this show man you're so wise and we had some great times in in florida at less confident i just had to have you on the show as the, as the first guest back to founders talk well that's uh you're setting the bar pretty high there i think <laughs> i don't think so man i don't think so but do, you, do you know the influence you have are you familiar uh, I, if it's there then i am certainly not that aware of it i think is the is, is. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I guess you're not even new to five by five. Like you've been on other shows here at five by five a couple of times. You've been on two different episodes of quit and even pipeline about a year ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so Dan's an advisor on Sifter. So Dan's always bugging me to uh, come on and and talk about the Sifter story because he hears all the behind the scenes stuff whenever you know, I'm talking to him and he's like, you need to come talk about this. And so he, he's had me on a few times to uh, chat about kind of what's going on and, and what it's been like. Well, what is it like, I guess? I, you know, this is a, a little different uh, start to the show, I guess, considering it's live. So those who are listening live, this is my first time doing a Founders Talk live. If you're listening to this on the podcast feed, you should tune in. Every uh, We're going to start broadcasting this show Live every Wednesday at five o'clock Central Standard Time. So that's every Wednesday. Uh, this week it's Garrett Diamond. Still pinning down the, the guest for next week, but every week we're to come back here and have a conversation like we're to have with Garrett. And you know, Garrett, I, I um, you know, like I'd mentioned a little bit ago, we uh, we we met officially at LesConf just recently and had a great time over there. Those guys know how to throw the best. You can bold that and underline it. The best conference ever. Um, but. Coming back to this show, doing it live, we're going to start doing it live every week. Um, let's let's start. Well, I guess what I was trying to say there was I'm not sure if this is going to be a one parter or a two parter because I got lots of stuff to talk about, and <laughs> and I imagine you got lots of stuff to say. Um, and you even had a chance to give a talk at Les Conf. And, and how unique was it that you gave a talk in your swimming trunks on a beach? <laughs> it was certainly a little random. I didn't get a whole lot of notice. I think I had about. 15 minutes to uh, put some thoughts together, which, uh, people said some nice things, but I don't know if it was, uh, sympathy or not, because I'm, I'm the type of person that really, really likes to prepare and, uh, any presentations I give it in the past, I'll run, run through them by myself at least three or four times, like the full presentation, you know, mind you, and that's after hours of crafting slides and all of that. So it was, it was certainly a little uncomfortable for me. Uh, definitely, kind of pushing the limits of what I'm used to, but, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. It's kind of, uh, you know, I think kind of, kind of fun to just 
have to wing it more and not be able to be so perfect and prepared. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> well, was that the first time you've ever given a talk without slides? Um, I believe so. Yeah. As far as I can remember. I think you did a good job. And the, the topic was pretty much what your book is about too, right? So it was, sustaining, yeah, it was, starting. It was one of the, one of the chapters in the book specifically too, just the idea that, you know, if you want to raise money, cool, but you know, there's a whole other flip side to that, which is instead of raising money, you can lower your costs and then you theoretically don't need as much money. Right. And, you know, it's so many people are divided into kind of the, let's go raise money and get real big. And then a lot of other people really passionately, Oh no, you should bootstrap. There's so many successful companies and so many unsuccessful companies in either camp. It's really kind of more what fits what you want to do and that kind of thing. And I think the problem is though, you don't necessarily hear about the bootstrapping side of things as much. And a lot of people, I think, you know, dismiss it for being impractical or unrealistic and, uh, you know, I just, I, I feel like more people should consider it, you know, not necessarily everybody should go do it. It's, you know, it's not right for everybody, but, uh, I definitely think more people should consider it and look at it as an option instead of just immediately, I need to go raise money or I can't do this. So I, I guess we're a couple minutes into the show. Uh, normally I, and, and I don't want to assume that everybody knows who you are, even though I know who you are and I've been a fan of yours for a while and, uh, love what you've been able to do and all the different, uh, topics you've brought to, to the surface, like, bootstrapping and what that means. But before you go too deeply, uh, do the audience a favor, tell everybody who you are. Uh, so my name is Garrett Diamond and yeah, Diamond, not Demon or Demon or Demone. <laughs> Demone or, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not, offend, I'm not offended when people don't know how to pronounce it because we always read names, but yeah. nonetheless, I figure, you know, helps people if they know. Uh, I have spent the last five or so years of my life working on a web app called Sifter, which is, uh, issue tracking and, you know, issue tracking, bug tracking, all that kind of stuff, kind of project management, uh, in some contexts. And that's probably what people most associate with me with these days. I also just recently wrote a book called starting and sustaining that goes into a lot of the lessons I learned by launching Sifter. Uh, some of the mistakes I made, some of the good decisions I made uh, with the idea that theoretically other people can benefit from that and uh, hopefully have an easier time getting things going than I did. Yeah, that uh, the book that uh, you shared, and I'm still coming through it, man. You share such... I was actually just talking to Dan about this just a couple of days ago. I was mentioning, because he's excited to have Founders Talk back on 5x5 and um, you know, committed to a good schedule and doing it live and, you know, doing things that every other five by five show does. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as soon as I mentioned that, uh, that you were going to be on the show, obviously you'd mentioned early in the show that Dan's an advisor of Sifter. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was so excited about it because, uh, and I kind of riffed on your wisdom and I'm like, you know, Garrett, you know, that guy is just, he, you know, he's got a good head on his shoulders. So wise and not just so much wise and like the advice you give back, but all the ways that you've all the different even mistakes, but all the rights you've been able to make and all the assumptions you've been able to make that have led uh, to, to the direction you're, you're at right now. So one of the one of my favorite ways to begin this show really is because uh, one thing I like a lot about doing this show is we really get to tell a different side of a founder's story. 
So to not like just rush into it and just talk about just the app that they built or the ways they built it or different things that they're doing or how they do their day to day and talk like about tech or whatever. It's, it's, there's more to that. So I'd like to go as far back as you think we need to go to talk about where your, your stint in entrepreneurship began, where you first got the itch to build a business. Like how far back does it go and, and where can we begin your story at? Oh, geez. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't tell you an age, but it was definitely the single digits. And uh, for whatever reason, well, my parents. So this is like nine or less. Yeah. <laughs> single digits, yeah. Just um, to give some context. My parents have always, I think, encouraged me to do just to, to build a business. I think in part because, you know, when you're working for someone, whether through layoffs or whatever, like that's just the one way to have the most control over your own destiny, you know, and not necessarily put it in other people's hands. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny cause I've talked to them about it since then and asked them cause you know, I was young enough that I don't clearly remember it or really know where I developed this idea that, Oh, I should create my own business someday. And they're like, I don't know. We never really told you that. And <laughs> so either they don't remember or I just made this all up, but you know, I've always felt like, that's where it came from. And I don't know, maybe it's one of those things they said to me at just the right time at just the right age where I just totally bought into it. No questions asked and they don't realize it. But, um, my dad, when I was younger, he had his own business and, uh, in the summers I'd go up there and help him and do, you know, menial little tasks. And there was at one point, uh, you know, where he was, him and my mom were essentially running the business together. It was, my, this is a really small business. They sold uh, nuts and bolts and screws and stuff to, uh, you know, construction sites and that kind of thing, or uh, companies that were building things. So, like, the maybe the early version of Lowe's, possibly? Uh, yeah, but very, very specialized. So, like, okay. you know, if you need just basic screws, you would go to Lowe's. But if you need, like, really, really crazy, random very specific materials to build whatever you're building, you would definitely go to my dad because he would know where to find it kind of thing. Yeah. Like you couldn't just go buy this off the shelves at Lowe's. It would be like, you know, like the 10 inch bolts that you see for, you know, big old electric towers and that sort of uh, thing. Ah, yes. Yeah, so I, I got to picture so this now. Yeah. Very, very specialized stuff. And so they did that and they ran that together. Um, and then for them, what happened was, they tried to expand and got office space and all of that. And my dad ended up being really, really sick for a while, like bedridden for months. Uh, you know, and at this point, I think I was probably five or six. And I only vaguely remember it. But essentially, it was this was back in the 80s, uh, the re, you know, kind of around the recession. And so it just kind of got to the point where my dad was sick enough and the business kind of, you know, he, he hadn't been able to keep up with it. And so he finally just said, you know what, I'm going to go take a job. He took a job with one of his customers, um, and worked for him for a long time. And so since then, so mind you, my parents were only self-employed for a couple of years, uh, when I was really young. And since then they've been, they both worked for somebody else their entire lives. So it's kind of weird that they're like, where did you get this idea of being <laughs> self-employed when we've almost never been self-employed? So I think it was just the combination of those formative years and, you know, the timing that made me feel like that was the way to go. So I know you went to school for computer science, mm -hmm. but um, did you 
so obviously you just told the story about how you were young and your parents were entrepreneurs, they own their own business, but it was just a short period of time. Um, when was the next period that you can think of that you knew that you had to do something, you know, that was entrepreneurial to, to do things where you're your own boss and to run your own show? Um, probably not right until I quit to start Sifter. There was a lot of pretty much all the jobs other than the one I got out of college. Um, almost every job I had since then was working for a small company of some sort. And I've just always felt more at ease in a, in a small company where, you know, I feel like if I've got an idea or something, I can just kind of take it and run with it. Whereas the, the large company I worked for, you know, I really felt more like I was just kind of going with the flow. And even if I had ideas, there was just too much random stuff in the way to go do it or, you know, kind of execute on anything. So I've always kind of been attracted to just smaller companies and being able to take things and run with it as opposed to kind of feeling like you're just trapped in a big machine. Um, yeah, the, the machines, I know how you feel. I've always been attracted to the smaller, more intimate relationships when it comes to business anyways. Uh, only a few times I've been part of larger companies and it's kind of cool for a little bit, but then after a while you're like, I'm, you know, I don't mind being a cog. I actually wrote this, uh, short blog post on what I think, uh, it means to be a cog and how important it can really be in small teams. But so I don't say this with a, a negative uh, attribute to it. But, you know, when you're in a bigger company, sometimes you literally are just a number and a cog and you have no ability to do as you said, which is get inspired by something the business is doing, take a little bit of ownership of it and, and execute. But when you're like, like you are with Sifter app, if you want to run support one way, you run support one way. And that's a big part of uh, your story with Sifter. But, um, well, yeah, it's it's crazy. That, I think uh, <laughs> for me too, a big part of that is uh, with with larger companies, especially if it's a public company. So much of the decision making is so focused on money, right? right? And like with Sifter, I can make all sorts of unprofitable decisions. I mean, obviously, we want Sifter to be profitable. We want to grow, you know, be have a few employees and you know build a team and have fun. But at the same time, like. I don't have to constantly say, well, this isn't a profitable decision, so I'm not going to make it. I can instead say, oh, well, is this going to make people happy or not? I'm just going to do that. And, you know, for better or worse, maybe that's not going to build the world's biggest business. And I'm totally okay with that because, you know, for me, I just, I want to be able to do this forever and have fun with it and, you know, have people enjoy it and that kind of thing. So I think it's liberating to not have to worry about that or not be guided or have your decisions influenced too much by, well, how is this going to affect this quarter's earnings? Like, who, who cares? How is it going right. to, you know, to me, it's more, is this going to make the people I'm working with, are they going to like it? Are the people who are using Sifter, are they going to like it? Like, those are the questions that, you know, I should be focused on. And I feel like eventually, you know, profit will come out of that if, you know, we keep doing it. And then if so, then we can reapply that back into the business or, you know, charitable work or, or whatever. Um, I just, yeah, I noticed you're pretty active on Kiva too. You've got quite a, well, <laughs> I, yeah, it goes a little unnoticed, I'm sure. But I mean, to me, that's a, I mean, I, my full-time gig is I'm the product manager at Pure Charity and, you know, our entire, uh, existence is about starting a movement of generosity to help you know, for lack of better terms, microfinance, adoptions, microfinance, some of the world's needs. 
both here and abroad and, you know, probably goes unnoticed for most people that you are such a contributor on, on Kiva. Yeah, that's, I mean, to, to me, I feel like that's a drop in the bucket compared to, to what I ultimately hope to do. And I was talking to, um, that was another really cool thing about LesConf is there were just a lot of people there who were more actively involved in things that matter, not necessarily let's build a business, but like, let's just drag ourselves around the world and help people. And, uh, to me, that was just really cool. And that's always something I've wanted to do, but at the same time, you know, you're constantly haunted by, okay, well, I've got a family and a child. I need to, you know, take care of them. And so it's this constant struggle between, you know, how do you take care of a family? And then how do you say, oh, money doesn't matter. Let's just, uh, you know, I think it was Bubs. He's like, let's just go to, <laughs> yeah. um, I don't remember which, which country exactly he ended up in, but, you know, he's talking about going there to uh, yeah. help after the hurricane or no, the tsunami. Uh, I feel like ultimately that's what I want to do. Like I would love for Sifter to just become self-sufficient and have yeah. a few people that love working on it and, you know, free me up to go do nothing but travel and help other people. Like that would just be awesome. Yeah. You, you mentioned Bubs. I, and what I like about the, that decision he made, uh, I think what was most impactful to me at least was that he kind of did it by accident and it was such a crux in his story. It's such a pivotal moment in his story, too, right? Like, you, you know, giving, I mean, we all say give back, people helping people, um, you know, all these different things. But, and, and I think even the startup culture has this notion of if you want to get ahead, help somebody else. Uh, it's mm-hmm. biblical, it's spoken in, uh, in everyday culture today. But it's such a, you know, yeah, you're definitely right, man. Like to be able to just, give back and you know you mentioned like from the big corporate standpoint not always be focused on how is that going to impact this quarter's earnings or what are the shareholders going to think yeah are they going to be upset with me with this decision it's like you have the the opportunity to to i guess experiment a little bit with not just your business but with life yeah yeah well you know like even for me to continue doing support from a cash flow standpoint and me spending time on things is probably a terrible decision. Um, you know, and, and if we were funded and we had a board of advisors or something, they'd be like, you need to quit doing support right now. And well, you, you know, spend, just, you spend a lot of your time in support. Um, right? like a, a good port. Well, I don't mean to, to just inject that, but from, what I understand is that you've you've even made decisions in your business on how much time it takes to do support, but it's a big component of the way you run Sifter. Yeah, definitely. Like you know, to me, it's support is support. I, I I use the word support. Most of our stuff is more feature requests, so it's more conversations with customers and and understanding how they use Sifter or how they want to use Sifter. But yeah. like. It's more interrupt. The the biggest challenge with support is just that it's interrupt driven. So, you know, I can be in the middle of something and I'll pretty much always drop everything and answer support emails, uh, you know, respond to it's just me. And I respond to something like 90 percent of them within usually half an hour. Um, our support tool only measures under an hour. So they always seem under an hour, but it's really more probably under half an hour. Yeah. And uh, to me. As soon as I do that, then they go, oh, wow, this person really cares. And it almost inevitably turns into a conversation about their ideas or, um, 
you know, how they, how Sifter can help them or if it can't help them, you know, a lot of times I'll even just flat out and end up recommending a different tool simply based on what they're telling me. Be like, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to turn you away, but you know, this other tool is actually probably a better fit for what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, just things like that, that again, probably not, uh, something that, you know, a lot of businesses would do, but to me, it doesn't really matter if they use Sifter, they use some other tool, as long as they find what they're looking for, you know, and that sort of thing. I don't know. It, it, again, just bad business decisions, but things that, uh, you know, make me feel better about what we're doing. Cause I don't want people to be unhappy and miserable with Sifter. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I like on your support page, I was really, um, surprised, I guess that, well, not surprised, but a happy, a happy surprise, I suppose, to see that the, the language you use. So I'm, I'm going to read this verbatim if you don't mind. But so if somebody goes so anywhere in your app, you're pointing to this particular page. If somebody has a question, they go here to get an answer. And on that page, they're greeted with this message. It says, hi, I'm Garrett. I'm, I'll be handling your support request today. I'm also the founder, designer and developer. So basically you, you wear all hats so I can help you with anything. I just wanted to, t- to let you know that your email will be going straight to the top. I just thought that that copy was playful, but yet, like, um, you know, it definitely came from you, the top. Mm-hmm. And then inside that form, I was even, I was like, this is really, this is super neat, man. Inside that form is a checkbox that says, this is an emergency, exclamation point. And then in, in parentheses, um, you say, this will get us out of bed in the middle of the night. So it's like these subtle ways of saying, you're really important. You're talking to the person that, that can help you make sure that, Whatever your concerns are can be handled. I just love the way that uh, that you handled the language on that page. It's really neat. So <laughs> the truth is the emergency button these days is irrelevant because <laughs> even if somebody doesn't check that box, they're going to get the exact same response. Um, at most, the emergency checkbox just kind of helps me understand their state of mind uh, okay. a little better. So will it really um, get get you out of bed though, even though it's not an emergency? So, and, and this is much to many of the other founders I talk to, who I consider kind of friends and informal advisors, uh, dog me about this. But I will, unless I'm just had a really long day and I'm exhausted, and the support request seems like it's not even like the person who's asking doesn't care about response time at all, I'll pretty much get out of bed in the middle of the night no matter what. Um, again, these days I'm trying to be less willing to get out of bed in the middle of the night. But my problem is if, you know, if the email wakes me up, which it will, um, then, you know, I'm probably going to get up and go answer it because otherwise I'm not gonna be able to go back to sleep anyways. So you, you use the word these days. Let's, let's rewind a little bit cause we did kind of get off. Not so much off the subject, but uh, a little bit off the track. Um, I, I just had a little fun talking about that. I particularly love doing support for Pure Charity, so I kind of have a heart for the way you've led your business. You know, uh, you know, some people in the Rails world or in the programming world, they have TDD, test-driven development, and mm-hmm. yours is kind of like SDD, support-driven de- uh, you know, development, where you're kind of developing your business with support and how you treat people. And you said the word support, but it's really you know, help. It's help. Yeah, help or I mean, communication sounds like a generic catch-all, but <laughs> yeah. it's you know it's really, and, and this is something that I've been thinking about more and more lately. Is trying to figure out because I call it support, but it's support implies that there's a problem or that like 
I don't know that there's somebody needs help. And a lot of times it is, it's just questions. It's just open-ended. Hey, yeah. what do you think about? And now, you know, a lot of customers too, since they know how open I am to kind of talk about ideas and that kind of thing, they do just throw ideas at me, you know, with no expectations or whatever. And they'll talk to me about all sorts of things. And, you know, that, that to me has just been really, really awesome. I don't know. For me, I, I kind of liked, I felt the same way about the word support, that it just kind of implied something that wasn't exactly true, where you do go there and you can get support, but that's not maybe why you go there. It's more like you have, you desire help. You have yeah. questions. So I, I always like the word or the phrase help center or something like to that degree. I like that. Yeah. To me, support. But see, the thing is, I mean, and, and uh, this kind of goes into maybe some things you specialize in as well. But uh, if you've read the book, Don't Make Me Think, and you're somebody who's in the user, user experience space and you're designing for experiences and you're, you've read that book or other books that maybe even mention this, that there's certain trigger words that a user or a visitor to your site will see that mm-hmm. makes them take certain actions. So support, and that word is definitely one of them. Help, help center, maybe. Um, feedback is one, though if you mm-hmm. talk to Sarah Hatter, she doesn't really care for the word feedback. A uh, nice little shout out to previous guest on the founders, uh, uh, this show, Founders Talk. So, <laughs> um, but let's go back in time a, a little bit because you'd mentioned that your parents started their business. They only did it for a little bit. This was, you know, the single digit years of your life. Um, and it wasn't really until you, just before you started Sifter, that you got the bug of, uh, of being an entrepreneur and doing that. Can you, can we rewind to the, to what was going on then? What was, what was happening in your life that made you take this shift and start uh, start Sifter? Uh, so it was a bunch of things. Like I said, I'd always known I wanted to be self-employed and start a business. I just never knew when, what, or how. And I never really worried about it. It wasn't a question that bothered me. Like, oh, am I doing the right thing? I need to go start a business. And uh, about the only way it influenced me is I just always gravitated towards small businesses. Uh, so I would at least, you know, be exposed to more different aspects of the business and that kind of thing. At the time with Sifter specifically, I had just recently finished paying off all my silly debt, credit cards, you know, all that kind of nonsense. And like it just it had just been a big focus of mine. So I just finished that totally coincidentally. Um, so I had no more debt. And the company that I worked for had just been acquired by EMC and we were in the consulting. It was all consulting. So we were in the consulting division of EMC, not the the division of EMC that most people are familiar with, like all the bigger enterprise products and that sort of thing. And we'd been acquired. I don't know. It wasn't very long. It was a couple of weeks and it was coming to the point where, you know, we had to sign the employment. Well, most people had signed the employment agreement I had held off because I had spent so much time with Sifter and I was like, oh, well, I don't want Sifter to, I don't think they're going to do anything with it or care about it. But, uh, it's like, I don't know. I don't want to sign over everything that I work on outside of work. And, you know, this, so they were trying to like potentially take well, things that were yours no, or they, they weren't trying to take Sifter. But keep in mind, I'd always work for small companies where I could just go to the founder and say, Hey, I'm working on this on the side, designing this and sketching it and playing with it. In my free time. Is that cool? And they're like, yeah, I, I don't care. And so now here it is, a big corporation. And, you know, a lot of it was probably just paranoia 
Um, but it was in the handbook. I've signed those before. Yeah, yeah. But it's like it was we, in there and it's like own, anything outside of this yeah. becomes ours, intellectual we, property. And we you start to get worried. Every idea you ever have. <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, those are uh, tough. That, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't really like that. Yeah. And so, and, and right around that time, I had been doing some designing and mocking up and that kind of stuff for Sifter. I didn't even know what it was going to be called at the time. I was just doing it for fun. Um, and around that time, um, talking to Dan and uh, my business partner, Keith, and kind of showing them what I was doing and talking to them. And they're like, you need to create an app out of this, you know, build a business out of this. And at first I was very dismissive because it's like, uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want the responsibility of I'm not ready for that. You know, I've got too much more to learn. Blah, blah, blah. So I've got EMC is trying to make me sign an agreement that, uh, I didn't really want to sign my, you know, a couple friends advisors are telling me I should start a business. I've just paid off all my credit card debt. Um, I'm really excited about Sifter. A lot of people are, you know, emailing me and asking questions and expressing interest in some of the things I've, you know, I've designed and it's just kind of all these things started coming together. And then a couple, uh, clients came along for freelance work. So, you know, I would knew I would have some income and, you know, within a month or so, I don't, I don't remember exactly. I was like, okay, I can just quit my job and do this. And I think, so I'd started originally designing the, the comps for Sifter and somewhere in August and on January 1st, or I guess. So what, what, let's so you're saying months. What year is this? 2008. 2008. Okay. Yeah. And so on January 1st, I, you know, that was my first day of self-employment. I had quit my job, made it clean. January 1st. So January 1st, 2008. <laughs> Good way to start a year. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it all just kind of worked out that way. And I was like, I'm just going to go for this. And, and Keith, mind you, Keith, my business partner, he, you know, he wasn't just saying, oh yeah, you should start a business out of this. He was here, let me write, you know, a small check to get you started. And, you know, so then, and he helped with a lot of the legal stuff. He's much more uh, operations inclined, so business, legal, accounting, all that stuff. And he had a lot more experience with that stuff. So I was like, all right, well, fine, let's just do this. I've got freelance work lined up. We can just make it happen. And, you know, so I went from someday thinking I was going to create a business to, okay, wow, I'm quitting my job and starting a business. And, you know, and that's really all there was to it. It kind of just all happened real quick. Uh, and then from then on, just started working on Sifter freelancing until we launched Sifter. And so you mentioned Keith. How did that uh, how did that relationship relationship come about? We so Keith was this is actually a really small world. My first job in Denver, I worked with some folks who are actually working for the same company, but they were out of the Dallas office and they knew Keith from the Dallas office. And I was in Denver, living in Denver, uh, and had planned on being there indefinitely. And then I got laid off and being a year out of college, not familiar with, you know, finding work and all that kind of stuff. I kind of chickened out and just ran home. So, uh, you know, I come back to Dallas and, um, you know, for, I don't know, a year or so floundered around. I moved to Albuquerque for a job, but it wasn't the right job. Moved home again. And then, uh, 
one of the guys I had worked with in Denver said, Hey, you know, I know some people here in Dallas, you know, you should probably talk to them. And so he vouched for me. And then I'm talking to Keith and, you know, kind of saying, Oh yeah, I'm from, you know, went to UTD. He's like, Oh, you went to UTD. He's like, do you know, uh, Dr. Page? And it turns out Dr. Page was not only my computer science advisor, but our fraternity chapter advisor and, you know, just kind of small world. Right. And so I ended up it's working. That's nice how that works out though, right? No, it's, it's totally crazy. Uh, uh, and so Dr. Page is his father-in-law. Wow. And, uh, you know, and that's totally coincidental. It doesn't matter, but it's kind of, you know, just that whole small world thing. And I ended up working with Keith from that point until I went and started Sifter. So we had known each other for... Well, you know, about five years and worked. So what is Keith's background though? Like when you met him, what was he doing? Um, his original background was project management. Uh, so, you know, he's always been the, uh, the services. Coordinating and leading. Yeah. Consulting yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. Now he is the CEO of a, I don't know, smallish consulting company of, I don't know, I want to say around a hundred people. Maybe it's a little bigger, a little smaller. Um, yeah, and, I mean, that's that's a decent sized business. Yeah, and he's growing that. <laughs> so he's just had some experience with that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I just we had worked together for five years. And, you know, he had all we had talked about building a bug tracker before, but we just never kind of felt like it made sense given other things going on, you know, personal things and this and that. Right. And at this point, you know, we're a little older, a little wiser. And I was kind of trying to figure out what on earth I wanted to do. And that, you know, he was there with the support and the check. And I said, okay, let's do it. And that's how things got going. So the, I'm just trying to think of like maybe the the next steps here, which is like, why, not so much why bug tracking, but like why bug tracking? Like what got you into that space that, that you were like, yes, this is, I mean, you'd gone from, you know, you'd mentioned how you'd move around quite a bit, hadn't quite caught your groove yet. And then somehow this was the magic ticket for you or somehow uh, this was what you could put your heart into. For whatever reason, and I, I don't know, it's a fairly long story, I guess, when I think about it, but I've just always been fascinated by bug tracking and issue tracking and the workflow around it and how it all works. And that a lot of that comes from spending my whole career prior to Sifter doing consulting and working with clients and, um, you know, internal teams using issue trackers versus getting clients or non-technical people to participate and join in and use issue trackers. It was just, uh, frustrating, I guess, you know, it was challenging out of college. The company I was working for had a very, very clear, well-defined, um, issue tracking process with software. We were building web apps, you know, and this is back in 2000 and the, you know, with, with really strict code freezes and, and all this kind of stuff to do very formal issue tracking. So as soon as I was out of college, I was dropped right into, you know, a really, really detailed, well thought out issue tracking process. And after that, um, the next few jobs really didn't have any semblance of issue tracking and at one of them, I even, the company I worked for had outsourced their software to a small consulting company. And I emailed that consulting company. I said, Hey, you know, I'm testing the software and I'm, you know, found a couple of bugs, you know, can you send me a URL so I can go 
log these and then you can fix them. And, uh, they go, well, no, we don't, we don't have a bug tracker. They go, we can, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll email you something here in a bit. So they emailed me and they emailed me a PDF and they said, print this out and fax it to us. And, you know, there's a lot of bug trackers that are difficult to use, but to me, that was kind of just, wow. Like how can a company not have create software and not have some sort of bug tracker? Yeah. So this is, Sifter is mainly built around a team that is developing some piece of software and they're tracking technical bugs. So yes and no, there's, uh, there's been people, teams have used Sifter for so many different things. And, uh, at one point there was a, a karaoke bar for years that used Sifter and the managers and bartenders and stuff use Sifter to track theoretic tasks and issues. I, you know, I talked to him about it briefly and it's just like a karaoke bar is using Sifter. Like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, it's project management, it's issue tracking. There's a lot of different ways it can be used, but it was certainly designed uh, primarily with the idea that it could help uh, small software teams. So let's let's maybe fast forward just a tiny, tiny little bit. Um, you You wrote this book, Starting and Sustaining. And I can only imagine this is this is the story because I am reading it. I'm not fully haven't read the whole thing yet, so I'm chapter by chapter. I'm I'm attacking it, but I can only imagine it's stories of you dragging your knuckles, getting them bloody, figuring out how things work, good decisions, bad decisions, and all the in betweens. But um, is it uh, what is it that brought this book out? Can you give us some of the stories that? Uh, kind of happened inside of your business that led you to even have the desire to write this book? Um, a lot of it was just questions from people that they'd email or I'd just run into people at conferences or, you know, wherever. And they would just ask questions about launching it or, you know, and I'd blog about things and then people would email me other questions. And so uh, it just started to be a, well, wow, there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions around you know, they want to do this, but they have no yeah. idea where to start or they're scared by it or, um, you know, they don't think they're capable of it or maybe they're overconfident. And, you know, because there's, there's certainly a lot of people that I talked to that were just way overconfident about some of their ideas. And then once I talked to them, they're like, oh, wow, you're right. That makes sense. And yeah. um, not necessarily telling them you know, not to do it, but helping kind of refocus their their thinking. And so as you just started to think, well, if I. Uh, you know, write all this down in a book that'll help people. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's usually, yeah, that's usually a good, at least a good thought. And, and it's funny since then, because now like I end up talking to more people because of the book and nine times out of 10, they ask questions and it like, it feels so cheesy to do it. Um, and, and whenever I do, you know, I'm always like try to be really, really helpful, but I'm like, Oh yeah, that's the first chapter of my book or that's the third chapter of my book. Um, so it's kind Isn't of, that kind of neat, Ali? Yeah, I think we even had a bit of that happening um, during one of our conversations at at LessConf, like I mentioned earlier. I'm pretty sure you even said those exact words. Like, yeah, I, I talk about this in my book, and this is after you gave your talk too. So yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know it feels so cheesy to say it, or I don't know, at least it feels cheesy to me. I've had experiences but, like that, but uh, my experiences uh, were a little different. Um, like as a interface designer or someone who's thinking about certain user experience 
tactics and strategies, I would be able to reference calls I've had here on this show. Like, oh, yeah, when I spoke with, you know, XYZ on, on Founders Talk, and it was so weird because I'd have to, like, reference something I've done, and it's it feels a little, like, self-promotional, and you just kind of feel dirty. But yeah. at the same time, it's, it's, it's kind of humbling to, like, wow, I've, I've got this experience, and I can, you know, use these things I've done, like this show or like writing that book, um, to continue to help people and point people to that yeah i think it's the self-promotional aspect like i'm stuff yeah it 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 doesn't feel right it feels you know you kind of have to do it but um and thankfully most of the conversations have been with people who already have copies of the book so you know or just haven't read it yet or what have you and so you know i don't feel too bad i'm like oh yeah just finish reading the book and then you'll know uh and, and i always talk to people and answer it no matter what but you know, it, to me, the biggest thing is it validates that I was sharing the right experiences and that, you know, if people are asking these questions, those questions are out there. A lot of people don't know the answers and, you know, hopefully the book can help them. Yeah. So I liked what you've done with the book too, not because you didn't just deliver the book. You delivered uh, a project task list, uh, spreadsheets, which there's tons of tweets uh, on uh, our different I guess, testimonials from people well-known and people not so well-known um, that that basically have said these spreadsheets, this numbers document that you've given is like, you know, well worth the hundred bucks that your book costs. Yeah. Um, and, and the conversation you and I had was that you've spent quite a bit of time developing that and you even have your own little personal version of it that helps you look at the financials of your business. And I think that's even one of um, one of the different topics you mentioned in the book, which is, you know, watching your financials like a hawk. Yeah, and and I still use that spreadsheet, you know, to this day. I mean, obviously ours is a little more customized because I have a lot more historical data in there. But um, and my business partner all the time, every night, he's like, "So, are, are we going to turn the spreadsheet into another product?" And I'm like, "We have so much work to do with Sifter." Like, just shut right. up. <laughs> um, shut up. <laughs> no. Well, and thankfully we have one of those. Well, I mean, I didn't mean like to to highlight the fact that you said shut up, but just like that's how I think and. You know, you saying that uh, to back to your business partner so it kind of sounds like my wife because <laughs> not in a bad way. And I don't mean that, babe. So I'm, she probably listens to this show. She might even be listening live because she um, she has the five by five app and she listens to a couple other shows. But um, just the fact that I am the she always and I think she even maybe said this to you because we all hung out at, at less confident. She she loved you, by the way. She was really stoked about uh, all the advice you give to me. So I right don't She's uh, she she's like she always describes it like this that Adam is the dreamer and she's the realist that I see rainbows and lollipops and she sees sunburn and cavities yeah and, and it kind of sounds like that uh, potentially I'm not really sure that's that's definitely I mean Keith is Keith is for better or worse he's a true capitalist a business guy um, he's wired that way the the cool thing is that even though he's wired that way and thinks that way, he doesn't push me that way. And so, you know, it, it works great and that he's constantly thinking about those things. But as soon as I push back, he understands and he gets it and, you know, totally respects it. So it, it I works. have to agree though. That was the first thought I had whenever I was checking it out and especially, uh, just hearing the praise and, uh, mentions of how valuable, those that spreadsheet is and what it does and how it calculates all these different metrics of numbers and helps you keep an eye on what's going on uh the f- first thought i was i was thinking was 
when do you turn into a product, but you kind of bundled it in temporarily to see. And in a case, this is kind of like maybe even testing the market because if you're getting a ton of good feedback from uh, bundling it with your book, the, it's it might even be a good gauge of should we or shouldn't we? Maybe. the uh, For me, the thing is I'm just not passionate about that spreadsheet outside of what it helps me do. The fact that it do. works. Yeah, yeah. And, and I I don't think you could ever get me to be motivated enough to – launch a spreadsheet application, especially when, you know, the existing thing does 80% of the work as it is. So, you know, it's just, it's not something I really want to get into or, or play with. Um, Keith is fascinated by it because it's, you know, business information. And, and so he definitely enjoys that and likes that, but I don't, I don't see it being something that uh, I ever want to mess with. Just because we're mentioning the book, you're also, uh, I guess we, we should talk about this part of your, your history as well, because I think it's it's actually the part where um, I first got introduced to you. I, like, I didn't know you before uh, through Sifter. I knew you kind of before that, but at the same time, I didn't even know you. Know you. I just kind of been a longtime fan of, of the work you've done. So you, you've been in like uh, um, information architecture, quantifiable data, UI kind of guy. But I thought it was kind of neat that on Dribble, um, when we're talking about this book, that you gave away the payment processing chapter. And I thought it was kind of neat how you gave it away on Dribble through a screenshot of, you know, what you kind of set up. It, it's just really unique the way you the way you think about things. And I just thought that was pretty neat how you gave that chapter away. Well, that so that chapter was the chapter that, without a doubt, took the most time to build, write, organize and kind of have others review it to make sure it was accurate. And I also, I feel like that's one of those things that even I, before I wrote the chapter, I thought I was like, Oh yeah, I've got my head wrapped around payment processing. I get it. But during writing that I was talking to a lot of people who are deep, deep in payment processing. And, you know, I realized just how much I didn't know and just how subtle some of the differences are, but how important they could be to a, a business trying to figure out, you know, what they're doing and, you know, which way to go and what do I choose? And I don't want to make a mistake because that's also something where if you make the wrong decision, it can really affect you down the road. Yeah. Um, for, for a lot of different reasons, depending on your business, your business model and that sort of thing. So it was just something that I thought, you know what, this is one of those things that just needs to be out there. So people can can read it, and um, you know, I probably honestly need to do a better job of of promoting it, sharing it with people. But uh, you know, it was just more of a whimsical. Let's get this out there so people can at least have this part, and uh, kind of go from there. Yeah, I'd, I'd um, let me see if I can find my note on this because I did want to bring that. No, I didn't. I didn't leave any notes for that. Uh, I was just thinking about how I, I think it was how you mentioned in a talk you gave um, that that you wish you'd have done it a little differently the way you integrated payment processing that you would have probably um, just I can't recall the exact verbatim so please help me out yeah. if, um, if you know what I'm thinking of but in the talk you'd mentioned had you known what you'd known you'd have probably just gone the right way versus not doing payment processing the, the way you really launched when you first launched Sifter uh, you recall that? It's not ringing any bells, but I mean, there's, so there's there's aspects. When we launched, there really weren't a lot of options out there. Braintree was that was it, yeah. Braintree was about the only game in town, yeah, um, for people in our situation. 
And even Braintree was still very young at that point. And so I ended up having to write all of our billing logic myself. So um, uh, that was it. Yeah. All you build that, your own versus using something that was already out there. Yep. All those details about uh, you don't realize how complex payment processing is until, you know, you kind of have to dig in probably, probably like a lot of things. And these days between Braintree and Stripe and Spreedly and Chargeify and Recurly and all these options, you can have incredibly complex billing systems set up in a fraction of the time it took me to build sifters. Now you end up paying a little bit for it, but yeah, cause they, they're going to charge a percentage yeah, and yeah, but a per transaction fee when you're getting yeah. started. And, and honestly, probably even when you're pretty far into it, like, you know, depending on your business needs and that kind of thing, if you know, if you need it and it makes sense, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're paying a small fee for something that you're getting great benefit from, but you know, I don't regret it. Like, I think that I learned a lot and it was really useful knowledge and experience. But if there's any knowledge and experience I wish I didn't have or need, it was certainly that payment processing stuff. I would have much rather just hooked up to Stripe and been done with it. Well, that uh, I think it comes down to what do you focus on early? Because maybe you can even talk to some of the earliest challenges that you had building Sifter because – there's got to be interface challenges. There's got to be technological challenges. And from what I understand um, about your history, even though you got a CS degree, your your main background wasn't really in programming. It was more on the front end side of things, how to design it, how to lay it out, how to architect it, user flows, user experience. It wasn't really on the, the back end side. So you've got all these other challenges that uh, you can choose to pick and Building your own building system doesn't seem to be the one that you probably really want to focus on building, right? It's building your product, and that's that's just a component of it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The The billing is a necessary evil, but when you're yes. getting started, and like I said, especially now with all the great tools out there, um, that's the last thing you, you, know, you want to be worrying about or, or bogging yourself down in. And there's just so many other things you need to be talking to customers and and kind of doing all that and focusing more on product that once you, you know, you start getting bogged down in that stuff. Like for us, you know, it took me probably a couple of weeks worth of effort to, uh, to build our billing system and, you know, and really work out all the, the kinks. And then down the road, it took me another couple of weeks when I had to refactor and reorganize a lot of it all, uh, you know, simply because, and you know, we need to improve it because I had built a really basic system originally. And so, and mind you that, you know, that's building it, that's writing specs and testing it. Um, you know, taking people's money was one area where I didn't want to have any bugs or issues. And so, yeah. you know, it, it was a big distraction when I could have been spending time, you know, on much more important things, things that customers were looking for, because no customer's ever, ever going to email you and go, Hey, I really wish you'd make your billing, you know, your payment processing better, you know, it's just, nobody's ever going to ask for that. Um, well, you know, maybe if it completely sucks and it fails and it doesn't work, they'll, they'll ask, but you know, as long as it works for the most part, nobody's ever going to really even notice or care. So I mentioned kind of just briefly, but can we talk about some of the most, um, I guess the biggest challenges you've faced in the first year to two years of, of starting Sifter? The biggest challenges? 
like the the biggest challenges you overcame, like aside from this one here where you mentioned building your own billing system and then that choice there, but what were some of the biggest hurdles you faced starting an app? Because you you know you wrote the book starting and sustaining, and you've got some you got some history and you've got some knowledge and wisdom to share there. But what went into that book that kind of came from the challenges you faced and getting over those challenges? Um, so. Oh, geez, that's so long ago now. Um, <laughs> well, because you're five years in, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So that kind of is a little early. But I think, you know, when people listen to this show, the early parts of it is uh, of, of a founder's, I guess, blossoming for, for their app is some of the most challenging pieces. And um, I recall just when we talked that uh, you'd mentioned some challenges you got over. And I'm just curious about, so the, there's, about some of those. There's... A couple. So specifically, the the two like kind of worst things. I'll address them specifically, but then there's one larger overarching thing. the The overarching thing is just self inflicted disappointment, and that's kind of always haunted me. And I would honestly say I've only been over that in the last year or so, if that. And that's where, you know, can you give an example of that? What do you mean by self-inflicted so disappointment? I expect so I've thus far been the only person in the trenches answering support emails, working on uh um like the the really, really big things. Uh you know, I've had some help and the, every day that's getting a little better as we have a you know, a few more specialists we can reach out to and have on retainer that help out. But I had expected by now that we would at least have, you know, three people where it's me and then two other people who are way smarter than me. And we were all be working together full time to, you know, improve Sifter. And that's not the case. You know, we have a bunch of people part time, not even part time, um, like part part time. And, <laughs> part, part, part you know, time. and that helps. But, you know, it. it it's not where I had always envisioned Sifter would be. So for the longest time, I was like, oh, wow, Sifter, you know, Sifter's not a failure, but, you know, it's just disappointing. And so that constantly just kind of haunted me until I realized, you know what? I've never been happier. I've never liked what I'm doing more. You know, how is that a failure? You know, just because right. I don't have all the help that I thought I'd have. Um, and, you know, and that was just because that was just kind of this totally self-inflicted. And once I kind of straightened that out, then, you know, that was a lot better. But Well, you could be your worst enemy sometimes. Oh, you know, yeah. You, you, people on the outside will see this perfect little world you're living in, like, oh, Sifter's front page looks great. I love your sign-up process. Man, that support is so quick. Or look at these FAQs. They're just beautiful. I mean, <laughs> you've answered all the necessary questions. It's so easy to get into your app. Uh, you know, logging in makes sense. I mean, all these things totally you know fit and work great but on the other side here's you and you're like oh, man i just see all the i see all the blemishes nothing but yeah. what's wrong yeah so yeah that's definitely the case uh that said there do you was, think everybody else has that problem too is it, it do you think it's probably just not you I think, but no I, th I think it's something that you know when you're that close to something you just of course you see everything that you have yeah. vision and i think it was joe stump had a, a graph somewhere once and it was just a straight line <laughs> and uh, it had here's where your uh, your app is, and it's the the notch is like ten percent down the line, and it shows here's where your vision for the app is, and it's like 
all the way at the far right side of this line, you know? And so the difference is you see that hundred percent line, the very, very end. And then you're comparing that to that 10% mark that, yeah. and so you just see a 90% gap. Whereas every other person in the world doesn't see much past that 10%, even the most visionary people who are trying to think about your product and most people aren't because they've got their own things to worry about. They don't see past the 10%. So they see it and they go, this helps me do things. It helps me get my work done. That's good enough. But no founder, no founder's vision or plans stop at that 10%. So we just see the gap. We don't see where we're at now. And, you know, it's, it's just a constant ongoing struggle. And, you know, it's not easy to, to kind of come to grips with and accept but it's certainly something that, um, you know, once you do kind of get over that hump, it really, really helps. So it, it doesn't sound like it's a problem now or it's becoming less of a problem because you have kind of come to grips with it. What is it that changed in your mind? Um, well, one is just unsustainable to constantly worry about it. Uh, yeah. And two, a lot of that has to do with the, the other folks that are helping now um, to be able to have a front end developer and back end developers and sysadmin who thankfully are all very much more knowledgeable about their domains than I am. And to see the kind of awesome things they can do in a fraction of the time, it would take me to do the same thing because I'd have to learn how to do it, uh, has really helped me feel like we're making progress. So these days I focus less on, you know, we're still so far short of where I want to be, but every day we're making progress, you know, and just chipping away at it. And that's really helped. And the other part is just simply realizing (laughs) if I'm constantly disappointed, like that doesn't really help us get anywhere. Like I just need to focus on let's make progress. Let's keep moving. And, uh, you know, anything more than that doesn't really matter. So you'd mentioned two specifics and one was this, what's the other? Well, no, there are two specific events that probably the lowest points. Um, one, the first one wasn't, all that big of a deal. It was just more of a kind of just a crappy event. And that was just dealing with fraud. And so one day I saw, I was looking at our transaction logs that somebody had charged or, or tried, had entered many, 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 many failed transactions, uh, which, you know, now in hindsight, Oh, well we should have been checking for that, but eh, it's probably not worth it. What had happened was somebody who had a bunch of stolen credit card numbers and was using Sifter's credit card form to validate if those cards were still active. Mm. And long story short, it cost us $200 in transaction fees. And, you know, I let it eat me up for like two weeks because, you know, being a fairly new business owner and, oh my God, fraud, that's terrible. This guy's breaking the law. I'm dealing with a criminal, you know, and just you know, it it was weird for me. And so I did a terrible job of, you know, it just, it bothered me. It ate me up. Um, at one point I was at uh, one of my really good friends weddings and I thought I'd had all the problems solved and, you know, a whole bunch of alerts start flowing across my phone. Like, I was like, Oh great. You know, he's here it goes again. Uh, and it just, it ruined that night for me. You know, here I am at a, you know, one of my good friends wedding, all of our friends are there and it just trashed my night. I let it trash my night. And I didn't need to. And so that kind of the next day I was like, what did I do? Well, you know, this has been eating me up. 
you know, and it just really dragged me down for a couple of weeks. Finally, we sorted it all out. Everything was fine. And in hindsight, like is <laughs> it was such a trivial, like stupid thing to worry about because, you know, basically it's like, okay, well, $200 down the drain and a whole bunch of wasted development time when I could have just not worried about it and just kind of done what I needed to, to, to stop him from doing it. And it would have been fine. So that, that wasn't as big of a deal. The second one was, was much, much, much worse. And that was, we at the time had been talking about upgrading our environment. Uh, we were still running Sifter, the application server, the web server, uh, database, background processing, everything was on one virtual machine. Mm, yes. And which, you know, talking to other founders, a lot of people have done that. Uh, that's not an uncommon thing. It's not to say it's a good thing, but plenty of very successful companies started that way. And we, you know, at the time, we're just talking about it and we were talking about it a little too late. And so one day thinking, oh, well, I'll buy us some, some time while we're sorting all this out and I'll just upgrade our virtual machine. You know, it takes a little bit of downtime to resize it and we're back up and all that. So I upgraded our virtual machine and, uh, you know, it wasn't working out. And so I was like, all right, well, I just need to, to resize it. Um, long story short, resized it. We ended up losing it in the resize um, about, I don't know, I think like eight hours of data. I forget the exact number. Mm. Thankfully this was eight hours. Sounds more dramatic than it is, but it was, wasn't during peak hours. So it wasn't that much data and we didn't have that many customers affected at the time. Um, but nonetheless, like the kind of the sinking feeling of, holy shit, I just deleted <laughs> customer data. Yeah, well, that's, that's not, a bad I deleted one. That's the data, big... but what I just did has permanently erased this data. So I immediately go to our backups. And at the time, and again, backups, you know, we had nightly backups. We were always right. just thinking, oh, disaster recovery, not really thinking, you know, stupid mistake recovery. And so the backups weren't as robust. We recovered a few hours of the data, um, but not all of it. And again, thankfully, ultimately, it was probably like 100 issues that got lost versus, you know, and we have historically like millions. So, you know, it was wasn't a huge deal, but it definitely wasn't, you know, wasn't a very good feeling. Um, but, you know, we gave a bunch of refunds for for customers and that kind of thing, lost some money on it. Uh, but at the moment that it happened, it was like, great, we're out of business as soon as I write this blog post, we're done for, we're never going to survive. You know? And here you are. And, uh, I mean, you have, oh, so, so down, just felt so incredibly, just purely awful about what had happened. And, and, and you know, really still do to this day. Thankfully now I see that we survived it. So I'm a little, um, less worried about that particular instance or like, it doesn't really haunt me. But, oh my gosh, what an experience. And so since then, like, we immediately went into, all right, every resource we've got is going into this upgrade, getting our backup straightened out. We immediately, you know, increased our backup frequency and, 
you know, took a whole bunch of steps like right away to, to sort out that and make sure that nothing like that could happen again. Um, you know, and then a few months later we were over to our newer environment and, you know, a more modular, safe environment with better backups, uh, a slave copy of the database. Uh, so, you know, just all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a really, really painful learning experience, but at the same time, at this point, I'm just thankful that, okay, well, we learned when we didn't lose a lot of data, like if something like that happened today, we would, you know, that would have a much, much more significant impact. And, um, you know, it would, it would be a much bigger, bigger deal. So, but thankfully now, if something like that happened, we would be set and we could, uh, recover much more quickly or, well, honestly, given our architecture, something like that wouldn't happen yeah. now. Um, so, you know, but it, at the same time, it's just a stomach dropping feeling, just kind of, oh, wait, you know. Especially since, like you'd mentioned, like you're in the trenches. So, you know, to go back earlier when we said, um, you know, on your, you know, I know it's the bad word, but the support page, mm -hmm. you know, on that page, you know, you're like, hey, I'm Garrett. I'm the guy in charge here, basically. Um, you know, so when all this, this big wave of whatever might be coming at you, like you're the one in the bullseye mm. and you've got to be able to you know, direct the technical needs of making the shifts to different servers and, you know, running backups. And, but then you also have to take the onslaught of these customer requests. What were, what were, so how did your, you know, your customers react? What, what happened from so that? Was it as a big deal as you expected it to be, or was it like, uh, um, maybe not? So, I mean, I don't know if how we handled it dramatically, you know, changed how what their response would be. Um, for the most part, all the initial emails were, um, they weren't mad or angry or anything. They were just like confused. They're, hey, I think I think one of our issues, it missed, you know, disappeared. Am I crazy? Did I put that in there? Yeah. And so yeah. most of the emails were that. And... You know, like I said, with our response times, I was always emailing them right back and saying, you know, letting them know what happened. Um, at first, we didn't have a lot of answers, but I was like, I promise you we're going to do everything we can to make it right. As soon as I have more information, I'll email you back, that kind of thing. And uh, really, you know, of the, I don't know, 10 or 15 affected customers, like all but maybe one of them were absurdly understanding, like to the point to this day where I'm like, it blows my mind how understanding they were. And then the other one was just moderately understanding. Like <laughs> my, like, I don't know. I can't even, you can't even understand my gratitude that people weren't like ready to, you know, track me down. Punch and, you down. Yeah. Come to Dallas. And strangle me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, that was just like a really, it ended up being an expensive learning, you know, experience and, something where it kind of really made me appreciate our customers that much more just because, wow, they don't want to kill me even though I made a mistake. So, you know, and you keep in mind too, like every issue that was created, there were email records and that sort of thing. So everybody was able to find their data, um, yeah. you know, and, and it really wasn't that huge of a loss. It was just a big inconvenience for folks. Was It seems like this was probably your birth, your first biggest outage Right. I mean, oh, it, yeah. Well, I mean, you might have had other downtimes, but nothing quite this. Yeah, big. it was certainly the, the biggest uh, infrastructure issue we ever had. And like, you know, at the time, it definitely sucked. But like looking back now, like I said, 
it's, you know, we made that mistake and now our infrastructure is way better. Our processes, everything we've got in place is so much better so that something like that couldn't happen again, you know? So for someone who kind of went through something like that, or maybe uh, for, for the founder out there or the future founder out there listening to this conversation we're having right here, right now, that might experience this in the future, um, yeah, I know that uh, you say don't wait too long to go to something that's um, maybe a bit better for being more highly available, something with better backups, uh, those kinds of things, redundancy for disks and stuff like that. But at what point do you know like – you say don't wait too long, but how do you know what is too long? At what point do you make the, the move to something like you did? Do you wait for an outage no. or do you <laughs> – no. you know, what's happening in the business that would give them like telltale signs? Um, you know, it, and I this is – Again, I go a whole chapter in the book about here's what I would launch yes. with. Right, right. Back and to the book. Okay. <laughs> totally, you know, have a separate app database server, your master slave set up and have, you know, be R syncing hourly database dumps to Amazon S3 and, you know, set up all of that stuff from day one. You know, if, if it's not you, then hire a sysadmin type of thing. Like, don't wait until things get screwed up. Like, yes, you can do that. But, you know, when you look at it, the the cost it took us to do the extra setup um, after the fact was probably, when you consider time and cash, probably twice as expensive to, you know, because we gave refunds. It took me a lot of time to talk to customers and all that kind of thing it's worth it to go ahead and make the upfront investment and, and set it up. You know, it's, it's not that much more expensive. The the cost of all this kind of stuff is so cheap right now. You know, when you're talking $20 for a single virtual server or $60 a month for three virtual servers, um, you know, or even 80 for four virtual servers, the, the cost is almost negligible. Um, you know, and look at it in terms of customers. If you're charging, say, you average $20 a month, then four customers are going to pay for your infrastructure. So then it's just a matter of the setup time, right? And, you know, and having your sysadmin do the initial setup. But that, you know, that's just part of the startup cost of, you know, getting going. And it's, it's if you're going to have to pay it now or you're going to have to pay it two years from now, you might as well pay it now and save yourself all of the, the heartache and customer disappointment and, and that kind of thing that you would otherwise encounter from a mistake. Let's, um, let's talk about the, something a little different than we might've been talking about so far. And, and, uh, we'll, we'll go for a couple more questions and we'll, we'll close this show out and maybe we'll have you come back and talk more specifically about the things you've done with Sifter. But, um, I was pretty impressed with the way that, um, the way that you talked about your family and how your life is and how you've constructed your life around your business and how Sifter is a part of it and all those different things. But let's talk about work-life balance. And I know this is a tough subject for some people out there because, you know, you some, some listening to the show are young. Some are in their 20s, early 20s, and they're just getting started or th- maybe they're even, you know, one business in. But how do you what kind of advice can you give about work-life balance and what are some of the things you've done to kind of insulate your family? Cause you've got a wife and you've got a daughter. How do you, how do you insulate yourself from some of the challenges founders have when it comes to getting too knee deep in their business and, and it running their lives? Um, so 
I don't, I mean, I don't have any specific things. I don't think I feel like for me, it's so keep in mind too, that my family has kind of grown hand in hand with Sifter. Um, at the time when I started Sifter, when I launched, um, I can't remember if I launched right before I got engaged or no, I got engaged and then launched basically shortly thereafter. Yeah. Well, you did a lot more than and, that. You, well, got, yeah. you did like yeah. the whole gamut of stuff. So then I got engaged, I launched, um, moved a couple times, bought a house, you know, and got married and all that stuff. And then we had a kid. So it, it all happened as a progression. It wasn't like, uh, I was trying to, cause a lot of people, uh, talk about, you know, it's hard to find time when you've got, you know, a couple of kids and, you know, a day job and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's a really, really difficult situation. Um, I think it's possible, but I think you really, really have to want it and uh, be willing to make some sacrifices that honestly, I don't know if I had been in that situation, if I would have been willing to make those sacrifices. Um, but now, thankfully, through most of the the more challenging parts or where I was kind of learning to, you know, how to work within my business and how it fits into the larger relationship, um, because it is, it's, it's a huge part of me. It, it gets a lot of my attention, you know, and I don't know, you know, anything that's going to wake you up in the middle of the night and you're going to pay attention to is, you know, you kind of have to admit that that's a pretty significant thing. And so for me, a lot of it has been, my wife tolerates a lot and which is good and bad. It's good because, you know, otherwise she probably wouldn't have married me. Um, but it's bad because she lets me get away with a lot too. And so it's mine, mine does too. Heather, she lets me get away with a lot as well. And I appreciate that, but man, it sometimes you feel guilty for that too yeah. because you've got that grace. But man, I feel you. So yeah, it, it it's tough, and then it almost becomes you have to self police to make sure that you're not uh, kind of taking advantage of it, I guess. And so what I've started to do, and I don't know, I've been doing this for, my daughter's now two. So for about the last year, um, I've kind of just embraced it, totally embraced it. I work from home. Um, my wife and daughter are home pretty much all day. You know, they go run errands and stuff, but they're both here. Um, so I'll take breaks sometimes, you know, or just get up and get out of the office. But also, too, my daughter now, she's old enough to open the door and walk in. And, you know, how a two-year-old daughter is very, very talented at being <laughs> really, really adorable. And, yes. you know, yeah, can't just be feeling. like, oh, well, get out of here. You know, I've got to work. And so now I finally, like, you know, until she does it ten times in a row, then, I'm you know, I'm real tolerant. And if she comes in here, unless I'm in the middle of a phone call or something, then... uh I'll just stop what I'm doing and, you know, go hang out with her for five or 10 minutes. So, you know, all day long, she kind of helps police me and keep me from, you know, working too much. She, and, and that sort of thing. And kind of, I just, it's, it's not chaos. That's probably a little too extreme, but I kind of just embrace the randomness of the days now to where, you know, sometimes it may be, I only get four or five hours in during the day and then I need to work at night after she goes to bed. And, to me, you know, it totally doesn't matter as long as I'm getting work done. I don't even care if I work two hours a day. If I'm being really, really productive and I'm getting things done, then 
you know, that's what matters. So, uh, if I have to stop in the middle of the day, I just do that now. And I don't think I probably would have taken that approach if I didn't have her coming in here and, you know, being cute and being like, Oh daddy, please stop working, you know, or whatever. Then, um, you know, I probably just work too much, but it, it almost helps. Well, how did she come to this agreement? That's, that's the part I'm, I wouldn't really I'm, even call it agreement. I just kind of settled into it. I was like, you know, I can lock her out of my office. Um, I can get office space, you know, or, you know, just a variety of things be like away, that. Right. You have a commute, be away, like, not be involved. It's like, uh, that doesn't even, none of that sounds appealing. So it was like, I want to work from home. I want to be here. I want to be around, you know, especially like I said, she's two. I've worked from home, you know, right. Every day of that. And so, you know, I don't miss any special moments. Um, you know, even if at worst case, my wife and her are out in the backyard and my wife runs in and gets me and says, Oh my gosh, come look, you know? And to me, that's just kind of part of the deal. And that's, that's part of the upside. And so there's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. Sometimes it's really hard to get work done and, uh, but it's still rewarding. And, and to me, my biggest kind of commitment I made to myself before starting Sifter was I want to start a company, but I'm not going to start a company if it means I'm going to put the rest of my life on hold, because as much as I care about what I do every day right. and, and want to, you know, do something I care about. I don't want to do that. Like that still should ultimately be subservient to, you know, living. And that's all much easier said than done. But I think doing that and because otherwise, Lord knows, I probably would have told my wife, oh, sorry, it's going to be two more years before you get a ring. Um, you know, then who knows how things would have gone. I'd probably still be single. You can't and, delay yeah. that. And I, and, and, you know, you well, I didn't want to delay it. And so you know, I think just accepting that and just being like, you know what, this doesn't need to be all, my wife doesn't need to, uh, revolve around the business. It's like, I need to just let those things happen at the rate at which they happen and the business will adjust. The business will get by. Um, if not, then I should probably be doing something else. And, you know, it's just, it's a constant set of trade-offs one way or the other. And it just kind of works out. And I think, too, a lot of it is having a very understanding wife. Like a lot of times, too, she's disappointed. And Lord knows that, um, you know, the amount of success, financial success I had when she started dating me versus when she married me are, are very, very far apart. But, you know, it's just it's just kind of one of those things. And you just learn to adapt and, and go with it. You know, at uh, at less con- it happens at other conferences, too, but. I do recall you talking about this, and I don't recall if during your talk you gave exact numbers on what your income was, but I know that in your book you talk about take you know expect to take a pay cut. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people don't really think that I'm going to start a business, I'm going to be rich. That's usually the, you know, <laughs> uh, that's sometimes the thought. Like, let me do this so that I can, you know, become loaded. But in fact, it and I think you even outlined this. Um, Either in your book or in in uh, I'm trying to recall what the talk was. I think it was the talk that kind of bled into yep. the book, right? It was bootstrapping a software product. That, that kind of bled into what the book became, right? And in the that's right, right? Yep, yep, totally. Yeah, okay. Just making sure I didn't assume that, but like it took you. I remember seeing the graph in that um, in that talk where you kind of ticked 
the very distinct areas where at which you made back or started to make what you had made before or came close to making before you started Sifter. So before you're making a lot more money, but when you started Sifter, you obviously had to have a founder salary, which is a lot less than what uh, most people make at a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. So when I quit my job, um, my tax return, and again, I quit and like started my new job on January. So it kind of worked out nicely. My tax return for the last year of working for somebody else um, I don't remember exactly. I want to say somewhere like $83,000 for the year. And, you know, that's pre-tax. And then the tax return for the first year of self-employment was, I want to say 31000 or something like that. And while we could have probably, no, probably, we could have given myself, given me a raise and got me back up to that um, 80000 range uh, earlier than we did, I have only, well, and I guess technically too, that was how much I made, but my salary was higher. I'd gotten a raise. So I think I was, my salary was like 90 something at at that point when I quit. And I've only just now started paying myself that again this year, I think. I don't remember when we worked it all out and we could have paid me that a long time ago, but we just made the decision to keep reinvesting all of our profit into the business and didn't really want to you know, I didn't need the money or want the money, I guess, because we live pretty frugally. So, uh, you know, it bought us some flexibility. So instead of having to give myself a raise and race back to making what I used to make, uh, we were able to just put that money back into the business and, and keep building it and reinvesting. And so now finally I'm back there. So it took me about five years, you know, and mind you, if you consider the raises I would have made in those five years, I'm still underpaid. So, you know, that's well, just, you just now finally made it back to the amount you made five years ago yeah. prior to, yeah. which isn't, I don't, and don't take my, my laughter as like a negative. It's just, or even, you know, criticism since, uh, since I, I, I uh, don't want to be like that whatsoever, but it's, it's kind of funny though, that some people start a business and they think that, um, that when the paychecks come in, they should. They should take vacations, and and I think Dan even said this recently on, on quit, and Dan is a testimony to this because, um, it, he works twelve fifteen hour days. Mm-hmm. Says you know if you're taking off on the weekends, and you're in the first three years of your business, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, like he he will say he says that. I mean that's the truth. Yeah. But some people, and that's why I want to ask you about the work life balance piece because. And you oh, mentioned yeah. that your wife is I, is pretty flexible it, with it. It has only been in the last month that I've stopped working significant hours on the weekends. Now, that's yeah. not to say I worked every weekend, but it was more frequent for me to work than it was for me to take time off. Now that's finally changed, and I'm kind of forcing myself to take weekends. And, uh, you know, I still usually I'll get up and work like an hour on like a Saturday and Sunday morning, kind of check on things, make sure everything's running smoothly, answer emails, that kind of thing, just to stay ahead of the curve. Otherwise Monday would be impossible. Um, but you know, usually my wife and daughter aren't even awake by then. So I'm not, you know, I'm not wasting any of their time by doing that. So it's, you know, you just kind of, it's a constant curve. You just adjust and kind of find the balance and all of that. But yeah, the first few years definitely are not, um, not carefree and the money, you know, I'm sure plenty of businesses blew up overnight and immediately started just 
making more money than they knew what to do with. But I, I think that's probably the exception rather than the rule. And since we mentioned bootstrapping a software product, the, the slides that you have on Speaker Deck, which I'll link to, if you're listening to this, I'm going to link to this in the show notes when we publish the show. But in there, since we're talking about work-life balance, you mentioned that you didn't realize the stress of putting your wife is, did we talk about some of that in there? Is there more that you can share around just um, that, that bad decision that you said that you made? Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know that I have any like tangible examples, but I think, uh, because she was so graceful about it the whole time and tolerated a lot, it just, it never really, never really clicked just how much, how tolerant she was being, uh, you know, like, Hey, it's the weekend. The weather's nice out. Let's go hang out with our friends at the lake. It's like, I can't, I gotta work, you know, uh, or, you know, and just constantly things like that where, um, you know, she'd want to go do something. I'd be like, all right, you know, have fun. I've got to get this done this weekend. And so a lot of that and, you know, here and there, that's not a big deal, but over a year or two that starts to add up. And, you know, the fact that she put up with that and understood that, um, or well, I I guess I shouldn't even say understood. I don't know that she ever understood it. Uh, she just respected it that, uh, cause you're doing what you gotta do. I mean, at the end of the day, and I know it's not like the the man saying, "Oh, I'm doing what I gotta do, babe." It's not like that. It's just like you got it. You you got this responsibility. You have to take care of it, and you got to do that for the first number of years, especially the first two to three years. Because if, like you'd mentioned, you're the one in the trenches. It's your name on uh, the help center support area. It's you who's getting the phone calls when the servers melt. <laughs> you know. You've got to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's never really been like, oh, I've got to do this work. Cause I mean, none of it was ever, I mean, there's probably been three or four times in all of Sifter where I've like, it actually has been, you know, a true time issue. Like, you know, when I, we deleted the data and, uh, you know, a few other times where it was outages or some other technical problem where it truly was time sensitive, uh, you know, and if four times in five years that, you know, I told her that and it was, absolutely definitively there was nothing I could do unless I just said, Hey, screw all of our customers. I'm going to go goof off. Uh, but other than that, like it was always just, you know, I've got to hit this deadline. I've been working on this for a month. I need to ship it. Um, it slipped too far already, you know, it's things that could have waited, but, um, you know, they didn't have to wait. And so there's definitely a lot that she put up with in terms of all that. So since we're, we're talking about family, maybe even the backyard, don't look out, um, serious question here. What, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about building a pool? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would absolutely. Well, you know, it depends on uh, what the person wants to do, but if that person has any, any desire to create any sort of business, you, you know, instead of writing a check for a pool, you could uh, easily be writing checks for, uh, your business startup costs or your hosting costs every month instead of a pool payment. And uh, I think that would be a much wiser investment. So for everyone listening, it, that was a, one of the, I, I figured that when we get a chuckle out of you, Garrett, yeah. <laughs> um, we, and if you follow me on Twitter, you probably, uh, you probably saw me tweet this. And uh, I think I can't remember if I CC'd you, but I definitely attributed it to you because we were, uh, we were, we had just sat down on the plane. So, Garrett, you live in Dallas, and I live in Houston. We were coming back from Panama City from Lesconf, and uh, we happened to – you saved us a seat for me and my wife. We sat down next to you, and we were chatting there, and just like normal people do, chatting. 
um, me and Heather are talking about, you know, what our life is like right now and what's going on. And um, some of those things are personal, which I won't share on this show. But if you know me, I'll gladly share it with you. But we, we it was funny because we were talking to Garrett and we said, well, we're thinking about building a pool. And Garrett said, don't build a pool, build an app. And considering we just came back from LesConf, I thought it was just uh, priceless, a priceless response. And again, when I mentioned uh, that I was going to have you on this very first Founders Talk back, uh, back and live, I was like, you know, Garrett's so wise, and that was an extension of the wisdom that I attribute to you. So that was that was a really good witty response, but at the same time, a very good response. See, to me, it doesn't seem like wisdom so much. It's just the obvious solution of the obvious right hey, look we're gonna we're gonna go spend a whole bunch of money we can go swimming or <laughs> you know and maybe to even to bring some of this into context to my wife um if you want to follow her she's at heather stack on twitter um so i'm adam stack she's heather stack but she's i think i even mentioned this in the show with amy hoy we talked about her and Thomas Fuchs being a power couple, and I mentioned a power couple. And for those of you who may not be familiar with what a power couple is, it's basically you know either husband and wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it might be, partners that both have uh, talents in a similar area that can you know really disrupt the, disrupt the market. So you know I've got a lot of web skills, and she's got a lot of web skills. She's a graphic designer, web marketer. She's really really talented, super smart when it comes to user experience and. Um, you know, when Garrett got to know us, I just thought I'd mention that because it was priceless advice that instead of building a pool, you guys should build an app. Yep. And there you go. Absolutely. All right. So, Garrett, we've we've been on the show for a little while. Um, and, and I thought it would just be nice to wrap up the show by asking you. Um, originally, I had it poised as who's your founder hero, but considering um, – Considering, I guess, the type of areas you play in in terms of building a business, you know, bootstrapping, how passionate you are about that. I want to ask you who your bootstrapping hero is. What company, what person? Con- conveniently enough, it's the same person. Um, and it's it's Dave Greiner from Campaign Monitor, who, you know, I had traded emails with him. Years ago, I think when Campaign Monitor was just getting started and uh, knowing him over the years, um, a little more than an acquaintance, but not like being necessarily, you know, great friends or anything. He's one person who just kind of watching how he's grown the business and how he's um, how Campaign Monitor has evolved and where it is today and having bootstrapped it and you know, really just built it from the ground up and kind of gone through all the, the hurdles and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and sharing some stories with him too. And one time, you know, just being, I don't even remember where in a country with really, really atrocious internet connection at a very, very critical moment, you know, for campaign monitor servers, uh, and fighting through that and just things like that, that, um, you know, I just think it's awesome what they've been able to build. Um, and, and what campaign monitor has done in terms of like the resources they've given back to the community, the email standards project, and some of those things yeah. that, uh, you know, he's just an all around good guy. Uh, they, they bootstrapped, they built a great company that's, that's very much founded in good design and, and taking care of customers and that sort of thing. So it's, it's without a doubt him. 
So that that I was not surprised, but uh, hearing hearing you say that, I totally agree because I'm a. I know that, uh, and I don't think Dan even cares about this, but I know on Five by Five, Mailchimp has been a huge sponsor for Five by Five, but um, Dan never really plays favorites when it comes to to sponsors. But um, you know, Campaign Monitor is is definitely you know a company I even look up to, and I really thrilled that you had said that because. They're such an awesome I think, company. too, the other thing for me is the fact that most companies that have had that level of success have branched out into other products. Yeah. And while Campaign Monitor has certainly expanded their their capabilities, they have stayed true, and it's it's still just Campaign Monitor. Yeah, they've kind of – they've uh, practiced the mantra of fix and refine what's on the cart versus build new stuff. Yeah, and, and that's definitely yeah. the philosophy I've had for Sifter. I mean it's not to say that we wouldn't ever build another product. Uh, but you know, I think there's just so much that I want to do with Sifter uh, that it, you know, it would definitely take a lot of just the right timing and kind of perfect stars aligning for us to kind of go there with another product because – just feel like there's so much unfinished work for us. And so to me, that's just really cool to be able to do that and having built that and not, um, you know, to, to have the discipline and the focus to just stick with that one product through thick and thin and, you know, keep growing it like that is awesome. So I, I know I emailed you about this before and I, and even before the call, I said, I probably want to ask you this question, but it doesn't have to be super secret, but is there anything that's like, fresh and new like past couple weeks something that you recently announced that those who are listening to this show and totally inspired by what you've done and they want to get into sifter what is it that's uh, been recently going on for sifter that uh, would be great to announce here on the show today oh geez um there's just <laughs> there's so much going on a lot of it should we go to your change log i was pretty surprised yeah. to see that you actually have a change log yeah we've got that um so far, most of the stuff that's going live isn't anything really dramatic or huge. Uh, a lot of it's more infrastructure related. The biggest thing we've been working on that's getting really, really close, we've, we've got a handful of customers trying out is our GitHub integration. So, you know, when you're filling in your commit message, you can close your issue right there. You don't have to go log into Sifter and do that. Um, right. We're set up like that. So you can actually do it through a commit and reference like a... a- a ticket ID or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you just enter the ticket number and you can just kind of add the comment to the issue or you can close or resolve the issue um, from the commit message. We've had that with Beanstalk for a while. Um, we just hadn't, for whatever reason, despite requests, hadn't gotten around to building it in with GitHub. And it's it's there now. It works. Um, it's not public for everybody, but you know we've been adding people on a case-by-case basis. Uh, to give them access, and it's, it's been going well. We still got a few little things we want to iron out, and make it work a little better, a little smoother. Uh, but that's out there, and that's that's definitely right around the corner. Um, and there's there's a bunch of other stuff going on too. That, like I said, now finally that we've got a handful of, of people working on it. It's kind of fascinating to me that I can I'm having a harder time keeping up with all the things everybody's working on. We're really working to make Sifter responsive so that it works better on mobile devices. Um, we've already made it much more touch friendly. Um, that's kind of ongoing. We don't have a date on that yet, but it's it's definitely getting there. I see progress on that weekly. Um, so, and so for those that are like looking to, I guess, keep up, uh, for lack of better terms, on uh, since we mentioned change log, I love that because <laughs> I run the change yep. log on our our tagline. There is 
open source moves fast, keep up. I just think it's so awesome that you have your own changelog. By the way, that's such an awesome idea for those out there doing something similar to Garrett. Take this idea from him. Garrett, do you mind? What's No, no, no. Oh. Take take the idea of having a changelog, even for an app like this, not just a technical but I loved it because you're like, uh, you know, small changes to this, minor tweaks to that. By the way, we've added this. And it's it's like a good place where if you're using Sifter, it's a good place to go and catch up to, to what's going yeah. on. But if they're not following that, where where can they follow you, Sifter, what you're doing? If they want to learn more about you, learn more about Sifter, where do you uh, point people um, to? Twitter, Garrett Diamond, um, Sifter app. And same on app.net, although I'm, I'm still not quite as good about posting there. I'm trying to get better about that. Yeah. Um, and, and those are probably the two main places. Uh, not as much Twitter lately. I actually removed Twitter from my phone. Uh, all the Sifter, if you tweet Sifter, although I probably shouldn't tell people that if they want it. But uh, I, I keep, I still follow uh, Sifter. All the Sifter stuff is on my phone for Twitter, but my personal stuff, I don't use Twitter on the phone anymore. I don't have any, any social apps at all on my phone. Wow. I finally just bit the bullet and got rid of them. I still check it on the desktop, but that helps me stay. Again, you know, it's like the time I'm with my family, I don't even want that temptation. So, you know, I, if there's an emergency with Sifter, I'll still get it and I can still do Sifter stuff. But, you know, I'm not going to be with my family and be like, hey, I'm going to go browse Sifter stuff like that. You know, so it helps to do that. And that way, you know, I can still check up with it, keep up with it when I'm at my computer. But yeah. that way that stuff doesn't interrupt or waste family time. That's that's pretty courageous, man. I mean, I guess not so courageous. I mean, you still have email, but just to step away from, from I guess, the constant connection of social, yeah. which is really tough. Well, the, the other thing I did, which has been really helpful, is... Sifter support requests have, they make a different um, alert sound on my phone than regular emails do. So, you know, if I get an, an email alert and it's just the regular sound, then I'll, you know, I'll generally, if I'm not at my desk, I'll ignore it. But if I get an email alert that's coming through uh, Sifter or any of the related Sifter stuff, you know, and it's much more pressing, it pretty much grabs my attention and, and, uh, I go to that. So like just little things like that that have helped me keep my phone more low key because I've always got my phone with me in case anything's wrong with Sifter and I need to deal with it. So mm-hmm. it's been a matter of how do I do that? But at the same time, not let all of that kind of stuff constantly interrupt family time. You know, I I think I'm I might possibly I, I have a little less courage than you. Do. I might <laughs> possibly try this. Uh, maybe at least for a couple of days because I've noticed recently, and this might extend the outro of this show a little bit, but that's okay. Um, I've noticed that whenever Heather and I sit down for dinner, especially if we go out somewhere, uh, I look at her and she looks at me and, and we both have our phones. We are totally talking and hanging out and enjoying our time, but mm-hmm. our, our our devices are definitely in between us in a lot of cases yeah. and she's either checking Facebook or it's hard. You know, lately we've been doing a bunch of personal things with stuff and it's just been, it's hard to disconnect. It, is. it really is hard to disconnect. It is. Absolutely. It is. Uh, but Garrett, this has been like an extended founder stock. <laughs> I, I think this might actually be one of the longest. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully useful, you're not upset by hopefully that. A useful extension and not just a uh, rambling extension. No, I think so. I mean, I, 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 
I kind of have the urge to have you come back so we could talk a little bit more about Sifter specifics. Um, but I'm I'm not sure if we got enough out. I'll leave it up to the audience to, to say that for sure. But worst case, I definitely want to have you back on the show again sometime soon, if not for a part two right away. But uh, I mean, totally enjoyed having you on this show. Really appreciate all the conversations that we had. While less confident, even this conversation here in front of those that are listening live and those that are listening on the podcast. But um, anything else you want to mention before we close? No, no. Just thanks for having me. It's nice to uh, to uh, get to chat. And uh, yeah, I want to thank you for listening. If you're listening to this on a live feed or on the podcast, um, this has been uh, episode number 41 of Founders Talk. We are back. We'll be live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Make sure you put that note down. Central Standard Time, not Pacific, not Eastern. Central Standard, and that's where you're at, right, Garrett? You're in you're in Dallas, so I am. Yep. 5 p.m. Right. Yep. Every Wednesday live. Thanks for listening. <laughs>